Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories. We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Sam Cho. Sam first ran for office and was elected to the Port of Seattle Commission in 2019 to become the youngest port commissioner in its history at the age of 29 and the only person of color on the commission. In his day job, he leads public policy in the Pacific Northwest region for the rideshare company Lyft. Prior to the Port Commission, Sam was the founder and CEO of Seven Seas Export, an international trading company that exported to Asia. Prior to his entrepreneurial endeavor, Sam was a political appointee under President Barack Obama. He also served as a legislative assistant to a member of the United States Congress. Sam received his bachelor's degree from the American University in Washington, D.C., and his master's of science from the London School of Economics. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Maggie. Brian, it's good to see you both. Yeah, Sam, we're excited to have you in the podcast. But before we dive into your awesome political career, we want to hear more about your childhood. <laughs> yeah. Did your parents ever expect you and groom you to be a politician? And what did they have, What did they want you to be when you grew up? Well, uh, the answer is absolutely not. And I think that's probably the case for most uh, Asians with Asian parents or Asian immigrant parents. Uh, my parents come from very humble beginnings. They uh, immigrated to the United States from South Korea back in the 80s. Uh, growing up, they were dry cleaners. So I always joke, uh, you know, my parents used to scrub white collars for a living. And now I wear white collars for a living, which is, you know, for some people, the American dream. Right. Um, and so you know, humble beginnings, you know, um, my parents were also very aggressive when it came to school and just education. Um, they, you know, what's interesting is that my parents actually never imposed a career path on me. They really did, uh, allow me to kind of figure my own way out. Uh, but obviously, you know, they secretly probably hoped that I would become a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer someday. Um, but you know, never in their, in their dreams would they have expected their, their son to become a politician uh, and so it's, it's, it's all new for my entire family, really, for me to be in politics. That is so cool. I mean, I, I had aspirations and dreams of being a politician when I was younger and I somewhat did for a bit too. I think we talked a bit last yeah. year about running for a like city council or something. And I really yeah. appreciate that. And then when I come to realize that there's not a lot of Asians in politics in general, right? Yeah. Because, you know, you're probably a handful of people that I can turn to that's, willing to give me advice. You know, a lot of people yeah. out there, because there's just so little politicians and representation out there. It's like, they're so busy. Like you can't mm-hmm. even get their time to like talk to you and, and suggest anything. 
So why politics? And why should Asians care about politics, Sam? Yeah, well, first and foremost, for me, it's about service and public service, right? I feel like I've always had like a servant's heart. And I don't know, when I think about what makes me happy in life, uh, oftentimes it's helping others and knowing that, you know, uh, what I've done has improved their condition or their circumstance. Um, and so that's why I started to think about public service. Um, you know, honestly, uh, I didn't think I would ever run for office uh, in my future. I was, you know, as Maggie read my bio, people might have picked up that I was a staffer, right? I worked for a member of Congress. Uh, I worked for President Obama. I always envisioned myself as the guy who worked for politicians, not a guy who became a politician myself. Um, but when the opportunity presented itself, presented itself in 2019, and a lot of folks within my circles encouraged me to run for many of the reasons you just outlined, there's not enough representation, et cetera. Um, you know, I was just kind of like, you know what, why not? Uh, and so that's why I ran as far as why, uh, why others and anyone else should care, uh, especially Asian Americans. Uh, there's a saying, it's a little cruel, uh, but there's a saying in politics. It's if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu, right? Uh, and, 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 and a really short way of saying that is that representation matters. Um, and especially for us as, you know, if, if anyone's listening is the children of immigrants, you're not encouraged to go into politics for the most part. Um, in fact, uh, most Asian immigrants uh, escaped political oppression. Uh, they escaped oppressive governments or communist re regimes. That's the experience of a lot of API immigrants to this country. And so uh, it's not something that's encouraged uh, for us to go into um, when, when we grow up. Uh, my parents, uh, growing up told me there's three things in life you should never do. The first thing is drugs. The second thing is gamble. And the third thing was politics. So, you know, again, it was never something that was encouraged. Um, but I think representation matters. Uh, and, and with the recent, you know, anti-Asian hate, uh, as a result of COVID-19 and the pandemic, we've, we've learned the lesson here that representation, representation matters and not just in politics, right? I think the anti-Asian hate has become a, um, a mainstream issue because we now have representation in Hollywood too. A lot of celebrities and a lot of folks who are making it up in that industry who are able to use their influence to shed light on the fact that our communities were being targeted during the pandemic. Uh, so yeah, representation matters. I absolutely agree, man. Repetition does matter a lot. And at the same time, it's like when you look at these Asian celebrities, Asian politicians, even though we're making progress, we're not making enough progress, right? right? Because we're very, we still represent a very small percentage of the people that you see. Most mm -hmm. of the time you see the same Asian politicians, you see the same yeah. Asian celebrities. So there's it, still a long way for, for us to go for sure. Absolutely. And I, I do agree with you with, you know, the three things that are <laughs> never want us to be. Two out of three is not bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, when I talked to my mom about potentially running for city council, the first thing she said to me was, why would you make your life so hard? Yeah. You know, and that's something I didn't really get because I yeah. thought it was a privilege and honor to sort of serve the community sir, and be a voice. Right. It so is. I, so I know like you're also like one of the youngest elected politicians in Seattle and congratulations for that. Thank you, man. What was going through your mind as yeah. you were this young politician? I forgot how old you were at the time. It was 29. Like 29. Yeah. 29 when I first ran, um, I won 
fortunately my first time around. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is that you realize that when you run for office and, and there's certain politicians, I'll be honest, that don't understand this as well, but it's not just about you anymore. Right. A, a lot of things like, you know, uh, starting a small business, uh, you know, working in the, a corporate world. Um, a lot of times it's like about your performance. It's about how you do uh, relative to others. But um, when you're a politician, you're representing people, right? You represent, you know, in my case, um, my race is a countywide race and there's over 2 million people in King County and over 329,000 people voted for me. Right. That's, that's a huge burden because, you know, at the end of the day, these people vouched for you with their vote, but they also donated to your campaign. One of the worst things that I ever had to go through, Ryan, is asking people for money, you know, because I needed to fund this campaign. Um, the fear of failure. Right. What if I run? I, you know, raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for this race and I lost. Right. There's no ROI there for them if they if I lose. Uh, so it's an extremely stressful endeavor. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of things uh, about it that I understand people just don't want to mess with. Right. Um, shaking hands, going, giving speeches, putting yourself up for scrutiny. Literally everything about your life is in the spotlight now. Right. You cannot make a wrong move, especially as a, a politician of color. Right. There are things that, you know, I'll be quite frank, my white colleagues get away with that I could never get away with because, you know, I'm the minority on the commission. Uh, and so there's a lot to think about. And your mom is very wise. Like, why would you put yourself through that? Right. But I think well, at the end of the day, um, uh, you know, what I, what I, what, the reason I do this is because one, it's greater than myself. Uh, but secondly, because I want to do things that will outlast myself. And I think a lot of the guests on your show are very like-minded uh, people who do things that are bigger than themselves and who want to create a legacy that outlasts themselves. And so this is just my way of doing that. Yeah, I, I appreciate your way of doing this. And, you know, really, thank you so much for being a trailblazer for our community, especially our generation, to see more and more people, especially in the millennial generation, being able to hold public office. Is, as, as, again, as you alluded before, it's really important to have reputation everywhere. Yeah. And as we know, we are the Asian Hustle Network. Most of our listeners are business people, interested in yeah. business. So I want to ask you this question. Yeah. How does politics tie back into business and entrepreneurship? Because they're extremely interweeded. And yeah. from a politician's standpoint of view, like how does how does everything connect? Let me tell you how I started my business. It was called Seven Seas Export, and I exported to Asia. I exported eggs to Asia, like literally chicken eggs, right? And at the time when I was starting this business, I was in D.C. and I was uh, working on policy. My specialty was actually trade policy. OK. And so in 2016, I don't know if uh, you remember, there was a huge bird flu outbreak in Asia. Avian influenza went ran rampant. A lot of Asian governments were starting to kill off their chicken stocks, their chicken flocks, because there was a spread of bird flu. Obviously, if you kill off your birds, you don't have enough eggs. So there was a huge egg shortage. What happened was the government put in a policy that reduced tariffs on egg imports to 0% from 20%. So before you had to pay a 20% tax on importing eggs. Now that was gone. And then in South Korea, they even started to subsidize the cost of freight, which is shipping to Asia. And so I saw that policy shift happen in Korea. I saw the market go from $3 a carton of eggs to $10 a carton of eggs. And I saw an arbitrage opportunity that no one else 
you know, I'm sure others saw it, but you know, a lot of government people aren't really entrepreneurial. So it didn't immediately occur to them that, oh, this could actually be a business an export business. So when the Obama administration ended and Trump came into office and I was basically asked to leave, right. Cause I was a political appointee. They were like, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I was like kind of at my lowest in my career. Um, no one wanted to hire an Obama person. Everyone was looking for Trump people. Uh, and so instead of kind of settling and taking a job that I didn't really have a passion for, I said, you know what, let's try, let's try running a business. Let's start and become an entrepreneur. Uh, and that's how I got my business started. And I've had to, you know, I've had failures along the way and I've had to adapt and pivot and go through all the things. But, but, but I guess this is my point. The point is it doesn't matter what kind of business you run, whether it's a mom and pop shop, a restaurant or an export business, you are affected by regulations. You are affected by policy, whether you are opening a restaurant and you need to apply for permits or um, uh, alcohol beverage handling license. Uh, those are all policies that come from your local city council, from your council, uh, your, 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 your county, your state, the federal level. So this, this idea that you can somehow kind of stay in your corner, run your business and not be affected by politics or policy is actually exposing yourself to a huge risk as a business owner and as an entrepreneur. And I think every responsible business owner is that, especially if you're in the startup space, I'll tell you right now, startups are starting to catch on to the fact that policy affects them because what is a startup? A startup is an unproven idea that's trying to disrupt an industry, right? And governments are slow to react or regulate these things. And so if you have a startup like Lyft or, uh, you know, any other startup that or Airbnb uh, and it has consequences, effects to the local market or economy, regulators, policymakers are all going to start turning your head and their head and saying, wait, what's going on here? Is this does this need to be regulated? And if you're not proactive and you're only reacting this is how you end up with regulations that could kill businesses and startups. You're, you're absolutely right with that. You know, I was a huge fan of like Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and they, because you're disrupting something that hasn't existed before. Yeah. You know, you're, most of your barriers is politics and it's great to be aware of how everything's interweeted. And I really appreciate those point of view. So definitely. Thanks. Yeah. It's extremely important. Yeah. And I love that you seize that opportunity. You identify that opportunity for exporting the eggs into Asia. And just for context for our listeners, Sam exported more than 2.5 million pounds of eggs. That's amazing. It was a lot of eggs. eggs. Yeah, that's a lot of eggs. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to know, how does one get into politics, Sam? And to add on to that question, you know, there's like you mentioned, you were working for politicians, right? I know you were working as a legislative assistant and you thought you would be working for politicians your whole life, right? But then you became a politician. Um, So for the first part of the question, how do you get into politics? And then the second part is for someone who is working for a politician, how do they make that transition from working for a politician to becoming a politician? That's a great question. So for the first part, you know, I think um, in some ways I'm a very traditional politician, which was unintentional because I, like you said, I worked for politicians and then made that jump. Um, I'm untraditional in the sense that I kind of, I've been going back and forth between politics and then business, right? I, I spent my first five years of my career in uh, DC working for politicians and policymakers. And then I started my own business and now I'm kind of, you know, working for a public agency, the Port of Seattle, 
which is very actually business-esque. It's not, it's not like a city council. What I would say for anyone else who doesn't, who doesn't or hasn't taken the same path as me, that is working for politicians. Um, one of the philosophies that I have and that a lot of good politicians have, I would say, is that all politics is local. Okay. All politics is local. So what I would say to anyone who's thinking about getting into politics or doesn't or wants to understand how to get into politics, start locally. Right. And this is what I would do if I were anyone else in, in that shoe. I would say, think about the areas of policy that you that you find interesting or you're very passionate about. OK, so, for instance, uh, climate change. If you're passionate about climate change, maybe you're interested in climate change or sustainability policy, education. If you care about what our kids are learning in K through 12 education, maybe that's the area of policy you need to be in transportation. Maybe you're uh, a cycler. You ride bikes. And you're really pissed off that there aren't enough bike lanes in your city, right? That's an era of, area of local politics and policy, right? Uh, and then what I would do is I would look for organizations or groups or nonprofits that do advocacy in those spaces. So again, climate change. If you're thing, if you're all about you know uh, zero emissions, clim- uh, fighting climate change, I guarantee you that there are local groups wherever you live that work on those issues and advocate on those issues. And so get plugged in. You know, send a cold email and say, hey, I want to get involved. I want to become a member. I want to advocate with you. Right. Uh, and so that's kind of the civil society, the civil uh, approach to it. The, the, the other part is, um, you know, everyone thinks about politics in terms of running for office. Uh, but the reality is there's a lot of uh, policy positions and political positions that you can actually get appointed to. Uh, and, and it doesn't actually require you to go run a campaign and or fundraise and be on the ballot. Right. Um, planning commissioners, transportation commissions, uh, you know, commission on Asian American and Pacific American affairs. If that's what if, you, if that's your jam, that's how I started in Washington politics is I got an appointment from the governor to serve on the commission on Asian Pacific American affairs. And I'm still on it. I'm on my second term. Right. Didn't have to run a campaign, didn't raise any money. I just you just make sure that you apply for those positions uh, that when they open up. And, and, and so, you know, um, just to recap real quick, one, get involved locally, start locally Two, know what issues you're passionate about and you want to work with. And three, uh, try to get appointed to any local uh, positions or uh, commissions that might be uh, there. Um, to your second question about how you make the jump from being uh, a staffer to a politician, I think that actually is the easier jump for a lot of people because when you work for a politician, uh, you learn how to be a politician. You learn, you know, if you work for a member of Congress, or in my, in my case, you work for both the member of Congress and the president, uh, you learn from the best. And so it's really just understanding the process and learning the process. Um, you know, uh, running for office takes a tremendous amount of work. And so you just need to be able to and, and be willing to put in the hustle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and do and do the work. That's the hardest part. Uh, one thing that I would say is find good mentors. I can't emphasize this enough that if you have good mentors, people who have gone through the things that you've gone through or that you're you're going through, uh, there is wisdom and, and experience that you can build off of. Uh, some of the mentors that I've had in my career are I'm just so grateful for. Right, uh, people like Gary Locke, you know, who has, you know, worked up the 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 ladder of politics and policy to as far as any asian american becoming the secretary of commerce the governor of washington and then ambassador to china you know uh, gary is a tremendous friend and mentor of mine that i've been blessed to have next to me and and, and uh, as a mentor uh, people like norman mineta who is kind of a trailblazer in, in many ways for the api community um and so look we don't need to reinvent the wheel 
we do not need to start from square one. We have people, you know, I think it was Newton who says, if I, if, if I have seen further in life, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, and part of the reason that I love the Asian Hustle Network is that it creates a space for everyone to really crowdsource knowledge and know-how, right? If someone wanted to run for office and they posted on Asian Hustle Network, I would jump on that right away and be like, hey man, this is what you gotta do. This is what you need to talk to. This is what you gotta do. Same with business, right? Uh, if I wanna start a bubble tea shop and uh, there's a bunch of bubble tea shop owners in the, in the group, you know, oh, hey man, this is how you gotta do it, right? Uh, and so, you know, th- this is what it's all about. This is what the network's all about. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's what makes the Asian Hustle Network so special is, is our ability to share each other's, share knowledge amongst each other without much hesitation. That kind of leads me down to the next question too. Out of curiosity, for someone who has absolutely no idea how the political game works or politician stuff works, yeah. how does one run for office? What is like the step-by-step process exactly. in order it's, to run for something? It's actually um, a lot easier than you think. Um, it really varies based on where you are. Every county or city may have different procedures. But for me, I literally just like declared Literally, I was just like, I'm going to do this. And then I registered and that was it. And uh, in where I run, there's a fee for registering to, to vote, I mean, to, as a, to register as a candidate. Um, but basically, there should be some sort of uh, elections uh, authority in your local area. You register yourself as a candidate. You pick what position you're going to run for. You pay the fee and then you're a candidate. All right. Uh, there's some more complications with like reporting donations and putting, you know, what you can advertise, what you can spend money on, what you can't spend money on, who can give you money, who can't give you money. A lot of those details are based on where you live. Um, what kind of disclosures you have to have, like who sponsored this ad, et cetera. Uh, and so those laws, uh, there's some federal laws, state laws, and local laws that you need to look into. But in terms of literally running, uh, you can literally just throw your name in the hat by registering as a candidate. It's really that easy. And that's why you get sometimes some crazy candidates because it's such a low barrier to entry. And that's how it should be, quite frankly. That is pretty crazy to hear. You know, I was looking into like the LA County or SF County. It does yeah. require like a large amount of set signatures. Was this, uh, Is this something that is required for most counties or how did we go? I mean, how does one go about acquiring that many signatures? Yeah. Especially if they're virtually unknown candidate. And unfortunately that is, that does apply to a lot of Asian candidates out there. It's like, we're virtually you know, unknown. I, I really don't like that. Quite honestly. Um, it's an equity issue for me. If you run a nine to five business and you can't go out asking people for signatures, then you're, you, it's essentially a barrier to becoming a candidate. Right. And so, you know, if I was, if I were a policymaker, I would really look at whether or not that specific barrier you, you mentioned, Brian, is actually contributing to the fact that there are a lot of, or there are less uh, candidates of color. Um, but again, in Washington, for instance, there's no signature requirement to run for office. Maybe, maybe where you are, there is. It varies significantly based on what county and what, what, what you're running for. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the goal should be to encourage people to run, not create barriers for people to run. Yeah, absolutely, man. And uh, I, I do I do think that's, that's really important. And then we keep mentioning reputation, reputation, reputation. It's so important because you just don't see enough of us. And frankly, quite frankly, when I go to the ballot and I see only one Asian option, I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> Why is he only have one option? <laughs> you know? yeah. And of course, this is very biased of me voting, but you definitely look up other candidates too. They already qualify. At the end of the yep. day, you want the best candidate that can represent you and your yep. community and what you're about. 
And, you know, on the topic of representation, how do we continue growing our representation to address anti-Asian hate? And where does the Asian American community sort of go from here? Because I think at one point last year, it's like, we're like, we're all in, I would say like a huge panic mode where it's like, oh my yeah. God, our community is hugely under attacked. This year, yeah. it's still very much under attacked, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like the media has stopped sort of featuring the mm-hmm. crisis in our community as often. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, where does the Asian community go from here? How can we yeah. continue being heard and being seen and taking us space? Because we need to continue taking us space in order to drive change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's, you know, we need to claim our place in, in, America, in the American narrative is what I say. And um, to your point about, you know, the news media having kind of their their foray on this topic and then moving on, uh, that only alludes to the fact that we need to keep the momentum going. Uh, the one thing that I was really encouraged by, despite everything, is that there was a huge mobilization of our community across the country that I actually have never seen in my lifetime. Uh, I think in the past, uh, this existed, you know, during the civil rights movement and when there was a lot of overt discrimination towards Asian Americans. But I would say like in the last 10 years or so, um, I have never seen such passion, fervor for justice and uh, just, you know, a, a fight towards, you know, equity. Uh, from our community, at least, uh, than I have in the last two years. And so the key is to keep the momentum going. Um, I think what we can do better as a community is we can be better allies to our other brothers and sisters in the Latinx community, in the Black community, because the reality is that the fight for racial justice extends beyond just Asian Americans. And if we start backing each other up in our fight towards racial justice, then that momentum can continue. Right. It's not just the Asians making a bunch of loud noises because they're being attacked. Right. It's a collective effort. Um, sometimes the squeaky wheel gets the oil because no one wants to hear the squeaky wheel anymore. Right. Uh, and so the idea being, um, let's make sure that we are all collectively working together towards that racial justice. Uh, the other thing here is that I think a lot of the anti-Asian hate that we saw comes from this idea of being perpetual foreigners. As you all know, uh, Asian Americans, it doesn't really matter how long your family's been in this country. Like the first question a lot of people get is like, where are you from? Right. And that question stems from this notion that if you're Asian, you must not be from this country. Uh, when in reality, we have Chinese Americans dating back to the 1800s who built the transcontinental railroad, right? We have Japanese American families who fought in world war II and were part of the most decorated military regiment in the history of the U S military, right? The full 42nd. Um, and the reason I say all this is because I think there's a true lack of education in our K through 12 system on API heritage, API history, and our contributions to the history of this country. And that's the reason why a lot of, uh, you know, our counterparts think of us as foreigners. Um, and, and if we did a better job of ethnic studies in our curriculum, then people would understand that, oh man, like Asian Americans have contributed to American history for over a hundred years now. Right. And that's the point. Right. We need to we need to make sure that the entire country understands that Asian American history is American history. Uh, and, and that's the fight. Right. That's the that's where we need to start heading. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And shout out to Illinois for making Asian yeah. history yes. now. That's right. In classrooms. 
Absolutely. I love that you mentioned that we have to work collectively together towards the fight against anti-Asian racism, Sam. And I definitely agree with you. I think that we definitely need to work together with other minority groups, with other ethnicities. Right. But at the same time, I think that there is a lot of you know pressure on politicians. Right. A lot of civilians Mm -hmm. are asking for a lot from politicians. Right. And I want to know, like, how can we work uh, collectively work together from mm-hmm. like politicians and civilians towards the fight against anti-Asian racism. Yeah. I guess yeah. before we get to that question, I just want to finish up your point about yeah. you know, Americans being erased from U.S. history. It's, tr- it's absolutely fact. Like we are not in most history books. Um, just me and Maggie traveling to Denver over like, the last weekend, we looked up Denver history of Chinatown. It literally got erased because of racism, oh, wow. That's you know, crazy. and it never had the opportunity to rebuild. Yeah. So that's what happens to most of the Asian American history around the United States, not just in Denver, not just in California, but around the United States is that, you yeah. know, there are a lot of deaths and racism that happens to our community. And what we're yeah. seeing right now, it's, it's history repeating itself. Yeah, uh, and a lot of us act shocked, but there's nothing to be shocked about because it's been going on for so long. And, yeah. and we, we, we should not absolve ourselves from the blame as well. I think even Asian Americans don't know our own history well enough. And, and that's because of the case. We weren't taught our own history in school. Right. Like if I, if I asked everyday Asian Americans, do you know about the Chinese exclusion act? Most people are like, what, what is that? Right. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, it's to our own detriment. And this is what we talk about when, when we talk about systemic racism, when we talk about institutionalized racism, this is exactly what we're talking. We are becoming victims of our own system. Right. And that's why we need to fight back and make sure that our systems are working for us, uh, which segues right into Maggie's questions about how we can work together is we need our systems to work for us. Right. At the end of the day, remember, we are not some sort of dictatorship or authoritarian government. We are a democracy where people uh, dictate how policy works, how we who we elect. And so, you know, on a fundamental level, if you're not voting, if you're not civically engaged, if you're not paying attention and then you become a victim of institutionalized racism and or racism from anyone else. I'm not saying you're contributing to the problem, but you're letting it happen. All right. Let's just, you know, whenever I, I hear someone say, oh, I didn't vote because I didn't like whatever X, Y, Z, or I didn't vote. Uh, then I always tell them, OK, well, then you're forfeiting you're forfeiting the right to complain later. When, when Trump got elected and I don't want to give away too much of my political leanings, but when Trump got elected and I heard a bunch of people, my friends say, Oh, I didn't like Hillary either. So I didn't vote. Right. You're still voting, bro. You're still making a decision. You're still allowing X happen over Y. So it's about civic engagement. The second thing I'll say, and I, I want to, uh, I've said this a few times and it's been a little controversial, but you know, why not? Um, there's this idea, uh, there's a, there's a, there are fissures within the Asian American community. Let's not pretend like all APIs are the same. Let's not pretend we're all progressive or anything like that. There are definitely some philosophical and political differences in our community. And I think Donald Trump and, and what he's done has kind of highlighted a lot of that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think uh, we're all here, at least my parents and your parents, and I'm sure a lot of our parents are here for the same reason, which is to better our condition to pursue that American dream, right? We may all disagree on how we get there or who we support to get there. But at the end of the day, we're all here to better ourselves and better each other. Um, But here's the thing about the American dream that I think uh, we need to really uh, be cognizant of. You know, there's this myth, uh, you know, 
is, is, it plays off the model minority myth, right? But this idea that somehow if you succeed, make a lot of money or move up in society, uh, that you can adopt the privileges of being white. Like we talk about white privilege a lot, right? And we talk about how like, you know, white people get certain things, get away with certain things or have access to things. There's a myth that if minorities just worked hard, right? And succeeded, that we can somehow enter that exclusive club of privilege, right? That's the model minority myth in, in a nutshell. And, and, and some people call this white adjacent, adjacency, right? But here's the fact. The fact is no matter how hard we work as Asians, no matter how much we succeed as Asians, we can never be white, okay? So this myth needs to be broken. Uh, and I think that having this level set understanding of how our systems are uh, and how they work against us or how, uh, or to better put it, how they are, are created to preserve existing power, to preserve the powers of people who've already moved to the top. We need to break down those barriers. And that is the same, not just for Asian Americans, for, for black Americans, for, for the Latinx community, for all minority groups. We need to understand that we need to break down those barriers as a collective, right? We, in other words, as Asian Americans, we cannot be okay with succeeding at the expense of other minority groups, right? An illustration of this, we cannot walk over our black brothers and sisters or Latinx brothers and sisters when they're on the ground, when they're down. And I think Amen. this, this, this anti-Asian hate uh, was, was a really rare instance of us being knocked to the ground and other minority groups coming and rallying around us and extending in hand and saying, yeah, don't pick on those Asians. You know, we got to do the same thing. Like we can't just cry foul when we're getting picked on and then be silent when black lives aren't being treated equally in this country. Right. Uh, and so to your answer your question in a nutshell, we need to show up, not just for ourselves, but we need to show up for the black communities for black lives matter. We need to show up for the Latinx community when they're being imprisoned, uh, you know, and, 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 and being put in cages at the border. Yeah. Amen. Man. I absolutely agree. We need to not only stand up for our own community, but stand up for other, other communities as well, because it takes all of us and every, every race to, to really push through these progressive changes. Uh, so it's absolutely important. And it's very off topic too, but I don't know if you guys heard like a couple of months ago about this article that came out saying that like Asian and white people are like, are like in the same category. So that is your Asian. Oh yeah. They like took Asians out of the minority category and yeah. grouped them with the white people. Yeah. Oh my and, God. and you talked about that, Sam. I think you bring up a really great point because like you said, we're never going to be white, you know, yeah. no matter what happens, right? And yep. the fact that people talk about the model minority myth, claiming that it is a real thing, that we are the model minority, it really downplays the racism and the struggles that we've gone through as an Asian community. That's right. Pretty much just like erasing all of the racism that we've ever experienced, right? Yep. And yep. It's, it's so important to actually talk about those struggles, talk about those experiences so people know what we've gone through as a community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I want to focus on questions on yourself, right? <laughs> so you know, as you're, you're, you're a politician, you're relatively successful. What are some situations where you've, you felt like you definitely won? You're like, man, I'm making progressive change in my community. 
what are some situations where you just felt really defeated where there's really no one that can really understand what you're going through because let's be honest here there's not enough asian politicians out there who you're going to talk to that understands what you're going through right what, yeah. what were the moments like and how did you get yourself through it and what was your support system like yeah i mean we can get real wonky here and talk about policy but i'll try to keep it as uh as, as interesting as possible you know one of the things that i think um people don't have a great understanding of is like what politicians do and or what a port commissioner does in my instance oftentimes i get asked to do things that like have nothing to do with me or i have no control over right they just see a politician a leader or someone of influence and they just start asking for things um and and so for me the challenge has always been to explain to people that it's not because i don't care it's not because i don't want to do it it's just like not what i have any influence over Right. Uh, and this happens oftentimes when it comes to things of like civil rights or or um, uh, policy issues that aren't in my jurisdiction. So I'll just give you a quick example. OK, um, there is uh, on the technology side, a huge debate over whether or not government should use uh, biometrics, right? Like facial recognition technology, fingerprinting, all these things. Uh, there's a huge uh, industry in tech that is trying to lever- like, for instance, um, clear. Right. Clear uses your I scans your eyes uh, and, and identifies you. And that's not controversial because you as consumers are opting into it. You're choosing to use it. Right. But the question is, like, to what extent should government use it? Right. Uh, whether it's immigration or uh, surveillance, et cetera. I have always been saying that, you know, um, I think there's bias in these systems. Uh, a lot of these algorithms might miss care, uh, miss. Um, identify people uh, based on certain facial characteristics that are more prevalent in Asians or, or, or black people. And, and so I've always said, we, we need to make sure that this is not being abused and that certain communities are not being targeted more than others. Well, part of the challenge for me is that I actually, as a port commissioner can only control what happens at the port, right? Within my jurisdiction, there are other use cases of facial recognition that are being used by the federal government uh, and other entities. And I just don't have the authority to tell them, hey, you can't do that. Uh, And uh, sometimes this gets lost. And when I ban, for instance, I banned facial recognition for our law enforcement at the port, which is like a no brainer to me. But what I couldn't do is I couldn't ban facial recognition for federal agencies like Customs Border Patrol or Department of Homeland Security because they're higher than I am. Uh, but I still got role, they, I still got really bad press over it. They were like, oh, like the port commissioner doesn't actually care because he didn't ban all these uses. He only banned like, you know, the police stuff. And I said, no, 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 it's not that I could, it's not that I didn't want to, it's that I literally legally could not. Uh, and so that's the, that's the stuff that I get in, into and into the weeds. I know that was a little wonky, but the reality is that like, I wish I can do everything. Right. But the reality is that like in my own little corner as a port commissioner, I can only do certain things and I do everything that I can in my corner. I do everything I can within my powers, uh, but it takes a lot more to do it more broadly. And that's just the case for everything in anything policy area that I reach. Uh, and then, you know, taking that criticism, man, like people are brutal. Um, yeah. and, you know, I mean, whether you're a celebrity, whether you're an influencer, whether you're a politician, like this keyboard warrior mentality where they feel like you can just say whatever you want because you're behind a keyboard and you don't actually say it to their face. Sometimes I wonder if I was in front of you, would you say that? I don't think so. Right. I've, I've actually met people who've criticized me online 
but are really nice to me in person. <laughs> it's funny how that works out, right? Because they realize, oh shoot, like now I gotta say this to his face, right? Um, and so that's that's the hard part when you take criticism, uh, when you're when you're called out by people, uh, they don't you don't think they understand or appreciate what you've done, um, and uh, you know you're only one person. Uh, so hopefully, you know, you have a very good support mechanism. You have other politicians and or family or friends who can kind of um, provide that support for you on a mental and emotional level, because honestly, it's a thankless job. You know, a lot of people don't most everyone calls and emails to complain, but they never call or email to thank you. So uh, it's, it's it's pretty it's, it's it's pretty tough. Yeah, I want to say thank you. <laughs> thank you, brother. Yeah, thank you, Sam. So, thank you here. Right? It's not, not completely thankless. Okay. Yeah, we're so thankful for all that you do. And yeah, something about the keyboard and sitting behind a computer does some things people think they're so powerful. But yeah. I mean, no matter what you do, if you're a politician, influencer, anything, you're bound to get, you know, critiques and yeah. you just have to keep moving forward because either way you, you will get people who will say good things, bad things, everything. So, yeah. you know, you just have to keep moving forward. Um, yeah. So Sam, what is the biggest misconception about going into politics and being in office throughout your whole experience? Oh man. So I think the biggest misconception that it's, is that it's like all hunky dory and that because you're a politician, everyone like puts you on a pedestal and, uh, and you get treated like, you know, semi-celebrity. I mean, I, I, there's definitely instances where like I get more attention than others. Uh, that's undeniable. Uh, but there's a lot of work on the background. There's a lot, like I said, the criticism and, and the critiques. Um, but on a more general level, I think the biggest misconception about politics and being in political office, um, most people, when they think of politicians, they think of Congress people, like members of Congress, senators, presidents, et cetera. Um, but the truth is, if you want to go into politics or be in politics, it doesn't have to be your one thing. It doesn't have to be your end all. It doesn't have to be your full-time job or career. In fact, uh, I would say 90% of politicians are part-time. I would say that most political, uh, politically elected positions are part-time. So you don't have to sacrifice your day job, your nine-to-five career, to be a politician. Uh, school board, city council, um, boards and commissions, uh, those are all, you know, they don't pay much, obviously, but they're also not full-time. And so... This idea that I have to give up my career in X, Y, and Z in order to go into politics or be a politician is just simply not true. If you're an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur, uh, you don't need to give up that startup to go into public service. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, um, and then, you know, obviously, you don't need to actually run for office or be in politics in order to serve the public. I think there's a lot of other ways to do it. I think a lot of people start businesses because they want to help people. Uh, I know you guys had Viet on your and her shok. And Via is a guy who just cares about other people and wants to build businesses that change lives. Okay. And a lot, a lot of your guests are like that, who in their own way are changing their lives. If, 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 if you want to be in politics, that's one way to do it. But again, it's not, it's not mutually exclusive. You can have a career, you can have a nine to five. Not everyone needs to be a politician or run for president. Right. If, and, and, and lastly, if you think you're too busy to be in politics or do, to run for office, then support your local politicians, right? It doesn't have to be you, right? Support the people you do know who want to do this and make sure that they're getting everything they, they need to success, be successful so that they can represent you, right? Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I, that's the biggest misconception, misconception I would say is like, it's not a full-time gig. It's not, I mean, it, it takes up a lot of hours. It's a huge commitment. Uh, 
And again, it's a thankless job, but the reality is that you can, you know, you mentioned in my bio, like I work at a tech company right now in my nine to five and I'm a poor commissioner. Uh, and sometimes it's not clear which one is my full-time job and which one is my side gig. But the reality is that, you know, like you can do both. Uh, I think our generation as millennials and um, we have caught on to the fact that we do not need to do the same thing for 40 years in a career. Like we can do different things every five, six, seven, 10 years. You, if you have an interest in something else, you can do that. Right. Or do things at the same time. Brian, Maggie, I know you guys have a lot going on. Right? You don't just do the Asian Hustle Network podcast or the, the Facebook group. You have other things going on. And so we really need to embrace that and say, OK, I have a nine to five. I have a business. I'm an entrepreneur, but I want to contribute to my community. I want to be a, going to get into politics or policy. Uh, and so let's break that misconception. Get involved. Do it. You know, uh, you don't need to put your 100 percent, maybe just 30 percent goes into politics and policy. But I guarantee you, if you put 30% in, I put 30% in, Maggie puts in 30%, and a lot of people in our community puts in 30%, that's a huge growth, right? And it's all we need. Absolutely. I love that advice. And just hearing you say it through your words and mouth is just so inspiring because I think a lot of people think if they go into politics, it has to be a full-time job, which is definitely not true. I mean, we see it from your experience as well. which is a great segue into our last question. And that is if you could give one advice to someone who's trying to go into politics, but is also an entrepreneur, maybe an aspiring entrepreneur and trying to juggle both, what would that one advice be? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, the biggest and most important advice that I can give to folks who are in that scenario is surround yourself with the right people. I cannot look. uh, I think it's been a buzz phrase in our community, in in not our community, but in our generation to say, I'm a self-made X, Y, Z self-made millionaire, self-made entrepreneur. Let's be honest. No one is self-made. No one did. None of your success is, is, is you achieved by yourself. Uh, it is a result of hard work. Let's not discount hard work, but it's also a result of support. It's a result of community. It's a result of mentorship, uh, all those things. And so if you want to do both things, whether it's uh, being an entrepreneur, running a business, plus being in politics, make sure you're surrounding yourself with the people that you know are going to help be helpful in making you succeed. If being in politics means that you need to take a little bit of a step back from running your daily business day to day, like you can't go into the shop every single day, surround yourself with people who can fill that void. Uh, Similarly, if you are a little too busy with your business, but you still want to be in politics and you can't give it your 100%. Uh, surround yourself with people who are already in politics, learn from them and ask them to help you. Right. I can't tell you how many times I went to endorsement meetings or meetings where I had to go give a speech, but I couldn't go because there's three or four events at the same time. I can't be in three or four places at the same time, but I leaned on supporters and community and friends. Hey, can you go on my behalf and just talk about me? I had friends go to events and say, Hey, I'm Sam's friend. He does all these great things. You should vote for him. It's not as good as maybe be me being there my, in, in person, but it speaks volumes when other people are vouching for you and they're on your behalf, right? And so surround yourself with the right people, whether that's mentors, whether it's people who supplement uh, areas where you have weakness, uh, you know, having a, a good circle around you is extremely important. And I think when you look at the most successful politicians, presidents, whether it's Ronald Reagan or, you know, Donald Trump or you can see how influ- how they are influenced by their circles. You're, they call it the inner circle and how much influence it has on how successful you are. When you have really shitty people around you, you're going to get shitty results. If you have good people around you, you're going to get res- good results. 
I can't emphasize this enough how important it is to, to not just have a network, but to have an inner circle that really supports you in ways that you need it. I mean, you are the sum of five people you hang out with. So it's, it's more important than what people think it is. It's extremely important. You don't even, yeah. you don't even know like, how much they influence your thought process and totally. what you think it's possible. So I highly agree with that. So Sam, I mean, we really appreciate you being the podcast. So how can our listeners find out more about you and reach out to you online? Yeah, man. Well, uh, my Instagram handle is Sam H. Cho. Uh, my Twitter is Sam Cho Tweets. I'm also on LinkedIn as Sam H. Cho. Uh, and you can email me at cho.s at portseattle.org. Awesome. Um, Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Sam. And Sam, out of curiosity, what does the H stand yeah. for? Oh, my middle name, my middle, so it's funny. My, my legal name is Sei Hyun Cho. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go by Sam, uh, but my parents being immigrants, they didn't know what a middle name was. So they broke up my Korean name. My Korean name is Sei Hyun, but they made Sei my first name, the Hyun, my middle name, and Cho. So the H is, I guess, technically my middle name. But it's really the second <laughs> half of my first name in Korean. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. good to know. But yeah, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for what you do for the community in terms of representation and serving the community and for everything that you shared today. We highly appreciate that. Thank you guys for all you're doing. Yeah, Maggie, it's so good to see you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.